0: One of the things that frankly distresses me most as a Christian is the, uh, the widespread belief that everyone or perhaps almost everyone is going to heaven. Whenever anyone dies you'll hear people uh, proclaiming that they are angels now, telling children that they are stars in the sky looking down on them or confidently affirming that they've been, gone to be with Jesus. I only wish it were true. I, I, w- I would love to think that all people are forgiven and welcomed into the presence of God. If I believed that, it would save me from a lot of pain concerning uh, people who are deeply precious to me. But I can't believe it. I can't believe it because I believe in a God who dignifies human beings with real choices. If we choose not to know him, then with deep sadness God honours that in eternity. I cannot believe it because I believe in a God of justice. Of course God is a forgiving God. Every citizen of heaven we'll need God's gracious forgiveness. But actually, uh, if God doled out his forgiveness to all without limit, that would not be a great act of generosity. It would be a monstrous affront to the reality of sin. I cannot believe it more than anything else because um, this book, the Bible, tells me coherently and clearly that God only forgives those who have confessed their sins. God only forgives those who have turned around and set out to follow Jesus. A very big part of me would love to believe that all go to heaven. And I do find it deeply distressing, thinking that that, that many do not. In the end I know it is the only satisfying view, the only real view of the living God. This alternative God of our our 20th century uh, imagination who makes everyone into angels doesn't take justice seriously, he doesn't take sin seriously, he doesn't take pain seriously, he doesn't take us seriously. He's a wispy, ineffectual, morally anemic non-entity. He's Valium handed out to the bereaved, he's Sweeties handed out to little children. But he has no power to speak actually in the real world of sin, injustice and pain. He has no power either to change people's lives. You know, when this sugar daddy uh, version of God takes over churches, those churches die, they always do, because those who are sincerely seeking for truth look elsewhere, and uh, others just cynically go off and pursue their selfishness, injustice and greed. Now, reading Amos, actually for me at least, has been a a distressing experience and as I I thought about what what needed to be said for the last time that we look at this book, I I, I couldn't help thinking that we must spend the overwhelming amount of our time simply reviewing the lessons that we have learned. Because you see, Amos was speaking to a nation The nation of Israel that adopted this sugar daddy view of God. Israel believed God would always love them, always protect them, always bless them. And predictably, after they had abandoned their old narrow religion, after they developed a much more pick and mix view of spirituality with their uh, um, endless variety of shrines to satisfy their broadening taste, after they had abandoned that old, narrow morality and adopted more broad minded attitudes, they actually abandoned any real commitment to justice. At the sumptuous uh, dinner tables of the wealthy middle classes in Israel, everything looked rosy until Amos, the... the, uh, And Bob Geldof of the Old Testament paid them a visit. And Amos told them about the real world that they were living in. And the real God who looked on that world. First of all, Amos said, this God, the real God, who looks on the real world, this God is a God who judges. He is—he he judges their sexual sins, for instance. Amos chapter 2 verse 7, Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Why is Britain the destination for more than half of the illegal trafficking of, of, of girls for sex from Eastern Europe? Eastern Europe? As a Lithuanian caseworker was quoted uh, as saying on the BBC, why is trafficking so po- profitable? Why do British men want to buy sex with very young, very terrified women? Why are sexually transmitted diseases amongst teenagers rising inexorably? Could there actually be a dark side to our sexually liberated world, which we are desperately sweeping under the carpet? far more prominently though than God's judgment on sexual sins is his judgment for their treatment of the poor Amos chapter 2 again verses 6 and 7 they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals they trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground they deny justice to the oppressed Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria. you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Or Amos chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. You oppress the righteous. Take bribes if you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Or Amos chapter 8, verses 4 to 7. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything you have done. frankly this morning we could spend the rest of our time listing how that might apply to the Western world. How our nation has trampled on the poor and forced him to give us grain how we have boosted prices, used dishonest scales with our restrictive trade practices. And we have lent impossible amounts of money and interest to poor nations, confident in the doctrine that nations don't go bankrupt. But actually there's something more disconcerting in this prophecy of Amos. God judges especially... Those who claim to know him and yet ignore his word. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, he says. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. God particularly hates religious people To ignore justice. Amos 5 verses 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. He is furious at religious complacency. Amos chapter 6 verses 1 to 7. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on your choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest oceans, lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore you will be among the first to go into exile your feasting and lounging will end. Tony Campolo is um, fond of saying to um, audiences of Christians, he's fond of saying, there are millions of people starving to death out there and you don't give a shit And then he says, and there's something worse than that. He says, you're more worried that I just swore than about that truth. Make no mistake about it. God judges us, says Amos. God gave Israel warnings. He gave them empty stomachs. He struck their vineyards with blight and mildew. He sent uh, locusts and plagues and war to shock them out of their complacency, to warn them of much greater judgment to come. Actually, over the last couple of weeks, One verse in Amos has troubled me um, more than any other. It's Amos chapter 8, verse 3. I'd like to encourage you to turn to it. It's on page 922. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. I don't know whether you can see why it troubles me. Troubles me because it sounds so like the London tube bombings. Survivors of that describe the silence after those bombs. And then the wailing. I can actually still hear the cries for help on that little uh, video taken on a phone. Can you? And the bodies flung everywhere. And you see the shock, actually, is that what Amos is describing is God's judgment. Rescues describe the... um, seen in that deep tunnel as like hell. How true they spoke. And surely we think to ourselves, God's judgment can't be as terrible as such an atrocity. Of course in many ways God's final judgment is very different. It will not be indiscriminate as uh, those two bombings were. Every person, every deed of every person will be carefully weighed in the balance by God on that last day. Not a single deed is forgotten by God. Each person, says the Bible, will be judged according to his deeds. It will be just judgment, not random carnage. but will it be any less terrible? Jesus described hell as a place of um, fire where the worm does not die. He did not in the least, in the slightest way reduce the vividness of the Old Testament depictions of God's judgment. Well, how could that be just, we say to ourselves? How could it ever be? Just for God to judge. Such a terrible way. And then in my mind's eye, I hear the clicking of fingers. That's the frequency with which children needlessly die from poverty. You know, in three minutes, every three three minutes, more children will die from poverty than died in those bombings. And then I can start to see something of the justice in it. And We have to accept we are not innocent of those needless deaths. Of course, we're not wholly responsible, but we are responsible members of a system which causes that. God will calculate what our share of responsibility is. I have no idea what tiny fraction it will be, but I do know it will be a tiny fraction of 3,000 deaths a day all of my life, even a tiny share of that is a big responsibility for me to bear before the living God on the day of judgment. I don't want us to leave Amos until we have started to see that, until we have engaged with that, until we have allowed that to penetrate deep into our hearts in a way that doesn't just move us for a moment but changes our lives. What are we to do about that? Well, let me say first of all, of course, we can't sort out every aspect of that problem. We can't do everything. We can do something. Let let, let me just suggest a few things. A few simple things. maybe we can adopt a more simple lifestyle. See, it's not, it's not actually the fact that there is poverty that makes God really angry. This side of eternity, the Bible is quite clear. Sadly, we will never make poverty history. No, it is the callous disregard of the poor that makes God really angry, especially as reflected in the excessive consumption of the rich. Remember what Amos said? You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve. I had, a, I had a conversation with a church leader. Um, let me confess, he was a prominent church leader of an affluent church um, a while back. He, he told me he got into trouble with his congregation because, at the front, he questioned uh, the growing habit of that congregation. Um, but when they went out to dinner parties, um, each couple would take two bottles of wine to the dinner party. Um, they told him, his congregation, many of them, that um, surely he was being a bit puritanical. Oh, Frankly, I I don't care how much wine people drink as long as they can hold their liquor. But I want to know they grieve for the destruction of human beings. I want to know that they've reflected deeply on the three children that died with every mouthful of choice lamb and fattened calf that they chewed and swallowed. On the sixty children who die, with every track of that CD that they bought. They listen to it. The 9,000 children who die. They go about their daily work every day. They sleep on their ivory beds. am Am I a wild eyed fanatic? My uh, raving loony ought to be dragged dragged out of any respectable uh, um, church. Well, I hope I'm not. I too live um, in the top 5% of the world's population and I don't think God is calling me to uh, embrace real poverty. That's not the way he works. But I know he's calling me to grieve. I know he's calling me to question the money I spend and the things I buy and the lifestyle I lead. And I know he's calling me to be generous. Do you know, um, people who visit underdeveloped countries and um, spend time with, uh, with really poor people, so often return saying how deeply embarrassed they were by the generosity of those people. The way that that, that they perhaps spent several days um, money simply on giving them a a meal. And they're the rich ones. who come to the poor and the poor give of themselves. Tom uh, Helder Camera, who was a bishop in South America, worked amongst the favelas, he used to say, money has a way of freezing hearts. Will we be generous? Will we grieve? Or, um how about thinking for a moment about uh, uh, exercising some personal compassion on the, uh, the people that you know and, and, um, and, and, and uh, whose paths cross yours on a day-to-day basis. There are plenty of people in this city who are poor, some literally, some more emotionally and spiritually, but they are poor. Go, go to Richard Brewster's Friday night youth group and get to know the kids there and hear their stories and if you, are, if you have a heart, you will weep. Take some of the people, uh, uh, talk to some of the people actually who come to this church, people, people who uh, stumble into our evening gathering, people who come to uh, doorway in the, mi- in the middle of the week or, or, or perhaps people who walk along Magdalen Road and you would be shocked. And what are we doing about it? There are some of us here who are doing uh, great things about it. But if our study does not stir us up to greater compassion, greater acts of service, then we will have read this book in vain. I've, I've... got worried actually, to be honest, in in the church that we have developed a habit listening to stirring sermons being moved on the spur of the moment and then actually letting it drift away. Let me tell you, God will not judge you by what you are feeling right now but what you do tomorrow, the next day and for the rest of your life. And I, 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 and I have to be honest, I think some of us are just callous. When did you, for instance, last spot the neediest person that you could see in the congregation and make the effort to go across and say hello to them and greet them? When did you last um, listen to them? When did you last offer them help? You see, we can easily retreat into our set of excuses. I'm too emotionally vulnerable myself. I couldn't help anyone else. That's not my gift. I need uh, enough help myself, other people should be helping me, not uh, me helping other people. I have a greater task from God. I can't become distracted into the messy world of practical care. I've done my bit now for years, it's time I sat back in my old age and, let some, and looked after myself and let others get on with it. I'm often asked um, for help from people. And if if I can't provide that help and have to look elsewhere, too often I find find I have a hard time finding others who will help. Now of course all the soft hearted people here will be rushing up to me at the end, uh, end and saying what more can I do? And maybe you need to do that. But what about if you've never actually, or at least not in the last year, said what more can I do? Perhaps you will be happy with a semi-Christian lifestyle and take your chance with God. So I read through Amos. I wouldn't like to do that myself. And here's another thing that perhaps we could, uh, uh we, sh- we should be thinking about. Actually, in the wider sphere, being more active in campaigning for justice. Amos chapter 5, verse 15. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. The story is told uh, of uh, a clergyman who spent a day in a Chicago court listening as a judge throughout case after case brought to him by renters of uh, slum buildings who were, um, Um, uh, trying to get protection against their rapacious landlords. Finally, the uh, clergyman stood up and said, um, excuse me, Your Honour, but where is the justice in this? The judge replied, this is a court of justice. Uh, This is, sorry, this is not a court of justice, this is a court of law. If you want justice, change the law. Now evangelicals are, are gaining a reputation for organising uh, campaigns and I'm, I'm glad about that because I'm worried about some of the laws that are being compli- uh, contemplated and, and enacted in our country. But frankly I feel that most of our campaigns are distinctly self-serving. And let's not campaign, against, uh, campaign for blasphemy trials against Jerry Springer, the opera. Let's campaign for the poor people whom that opera also mocks. Jesus' reputation, frankly, is not harmed by juvenile theatre directors who think they're but clever by portraying him in nappies, but by Christians who claim to care about Jesus but who do not care for the poor that is noticed well thank God one of us here went to Edinburgh to march in the make poverty history campaign. I know it 's a small thing, but it 's something actually we're, we're uh, talking about developing a community focus team in the church so that it, uh, um, both will be perhaps a little bit more enabled to, 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 to give practical help but also will be able to alert us to issues that uh, me want, we want, might want to write to our, uh, our MPs about. Perhaps you yourself might want to join the Tier Fund's mailing list or, or, um, or Amnesty International's or others. It's, a, it's amazing actually the power of a, of a thousand letters written to a foreign embassy uh, on behalf of someone uh, unjustly imprisoned. Whatever we do though, we read this book, if we come to the end of our series looking at this book and are not changed, are not transformed, then it will have been a waste of time. And we haven't even got to our study passage this morning. I'm not surprised. Perhaps you will... Uh, yourself will want to look later at um, Amos chapter 9 verses 11 to 12, for instance, where Amos looks forward to a restored kingdom, a kingdom of all nations. He couldn't fully see what, uh, what the future holds, he glimpsed it only. He glimpsed something of God's church living under the kingship of Jesus, being um, a people from all nations which of course finally will mature into the new heaven and the new earth where people from every tribe and nation are worshipping King Jesus. This is what Amos hopes for. But before that day, says Amos, there will be a sifting. As grain is shaken in the sieve, not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Now perhaps you'll want to look at verse 13 where Amos describes a new creation. He describes it in terms of harvests that are so bountiful that they haven't finished collecting the last crop before it's time to sow the next crop. So wonderful is this new creation that God is creating for his people to live in and to enjoy. But before that day there will be a sifting. Perhaps you will want to look at uh, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 9, where Amos describes a complete restored life, co- restored community life, he says, where cities are built, restored agricultural life, where vineyards and gardens are planted and produce fruit to be enjoyed. Most importantly, a a restored life of absolute security and perfect rest where no one is going to be uprooted ever again. What a wonderful picture of heaven that is. But before that, there will be a sifting. Jesus talked about that too. He told a parable once of sheep and goats. One group thought they were headed for heaven but actually they were heartless and thoughtless. They didn't feed the hungry, they didn't welcome strangers, they didn't clothe the poor, they didn't care for the sick or the prisoners and Jesus said that though they protested their innocence they would hear God say, depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He said there were another group of soft-hearted people, people who actually felt they'd never done enough. So that when Jesus listed uh, the the things they had done on the last day, they said, when did we clothe the poor and feed the hungry and look after the the thirsty and care? Oh no, no, says Jesus, you've done it. Jesus will say, come you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Stories told of um, the great early American missionary to American Indians, David Brainerd, who... um, preached to the Indians that that, that he loved about heaven. He described it to them in the terms that Amos describes it. So they were weeping. And he said, why are you weeping? They said, because right now we feel we can't get there. And we want it so much. Do you want eternity so much? Do you long for that restored beautiful kingdom with Jesus at the center? Do you long for that restored creation, so bountiful and so wonderful? Do you long for a restored community? We long for a new life. Unless we ask the living God to touch our hearts and transform us and regenerate us so that we live a new life. And the way is barred. But if we ask Him to do that, then there is forgiveness. For our failures. The way is wide open. One thing distresses me as much as the wider world confidently saying everyone goes to heaven. It is a complacent attitude that says everyone inside the walls of churches go to heaven. Actually, my Bible teaches me that it is that complacency that is most vehemently attacked by God. No one goes to heaven whose heart has not been changed. Let's pray.